Hi, I'm Dan Fermack, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Wednesday, May 12th. Inflation is up, Liz Cheney is down, and we're focused on how the U.S. plans to combat climate change in other countries. Earlier this week, a former Obama White House staffer named Jake Levine was named the first ever chief climate officer for the Development Finance Corporation, a U.S. government group that kind of acts like a venture capital firm for developing countries. Or put a little differently, it provides foreign aid, but by giving money to private projects rather than to governments. Now, lots of these projects over the years have been environmental in nature, uh, things like solar energy and clean water distribution. But Levine's appointment and the entire creation of a chief climate officer role at all at DFC reflect two things. First, that the Biden administration recognizes climate change as a global issue in terms of both the causes and the impacts, which means we can't just stem the tide by taking action here at home. Second, that private industry is a key part of the solution, particularly in terms of developing innovation. I mean, regulation can help, but it doesn't develop cheaper and more efficient batteries or carbon capture technologies. So today we want to have two conversations. First, with Axios climate and energy reporter Andrew Friedman, who will help explain why Levine's appointment matters. Second, with Jake Levine himself, who will explain why he left his big law job to return to public service and what he plans to do in this chief climate officer role. Those conversations in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Axios climate and energy reporter Andrew Friedman. Uh, Andrew, when you heard that DFC was adding a chief climate officer, what was your reaction? I thought that it was an interesting move. I thought it was a, actually a relatively significant and smart move. It's not a high-profile agency, but it does actually do some really interesting things abroad. What's most interesting to you about what they do? They can basically kind of act a little bit as like a venture capital fund for the developing world. So if they want to do solar projects or geothermal projects or other type of clean energy projects, they would be able to play a role in that. When it comes to, you know, reducing uh, carbon emissions globally and, and kind of climate change more broadly, how big a role does DFC play or how big a role has it played historically? Historically, I don't know that it has played a leading role uh, by any means. There's bigger agencies with, you know, larger portfolios. People mostly concentrate on the World Bank. People mostly concentrate on um, some other U.S. agencies, you know, uh, USAID, for example, for foreign aid. The DOC kind of flies under the radar. But if you look at its board... It's the head of USAID, it's the Secretary of State is on the board, it's top-level officials. Um, this is, you know, a government entity that is sending money abroad for specific purposes. What it's doing now is steering that money towards clean energy and towards trying to jumpstart these things in other countries. I think a lot of people, when they think of climate change and helping, think of government regulation. But is this in part a reflection that the U.S. government says... Ultimately, the private sector is going to be the one that has to figure this stuff out from a technological perspective. Yeah, I mean, this is something that John Kerry says a lot. He says the actions that we are going to take during the Biden administration are not going to be overturned by any subsequent administration, even if it's Republican, because the private sector won't allow that. The private sector is moving in one direction 
and is kind of uh, taking over. So this move uh, harnesses some of the power of the private sector. Uh, it's just harnessing some of the power of the private sector abroad with public sector money from the United States. And obviously, John Kerry said, you know, climate czar, obviously something didn't exist under under Trump's White House. Are there other parts of the U.S. government that you think should have a climate position that don't or or that you hear might get one? I think you can expect this type of move to happen at all sorts of government agencies that you might never have heard of before. Uh, they're taking an all of government approach. Uh, that's not just uh, cabinet level agencies. We know who these cabinet secretaries are. We know who Gina McCarthy is. We know who Secretary Kerry is. But the foreign aid oriented agencies, lending institutions, trying to influence the portfolios of different agencies that pour money abroad and that in the past may have supplied money to fossil fuel projects that are causing the problem in the first place. Andrew Friedman of Axios, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're joined now by Jake Levine, Chief Climate Officer for the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. So, Jake, let's start with the first obvious question. What is a Chief Climate Officer for U.S. DFC? This is a first ever new, newly created position at the DFC, which is created in line with the broad Biden-Harris administration's priority on not just building back better at home, but also putting the foundation together to really build clean energy, resilient climate, resilient economies abroad, and to use the financial tools that we have available to us as the United States government and the ability to take on financing risks to help other countries decarbonize and address some of the most pressing challenges that they have as they're going to be confronting the climate crisis uh, at, in their homes. Is this an acceleration of DFC? Because they've been doing climate work, which does merge public and private, correct? Yeah. It, and and I think that's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, this is an effort to really step on the gas. The president announced at the World Leaders Climate Summit on April 22nd and April 23rd that the DFC was going to commit at least a third of its investments into climate-focused projects. And we also announced the most ambitious net zero policy of any development finance institution in the world. We're going to get to net zero by 2040. We're not going to invest in any fossil fuels after the year 2030. And we are accelerating towards those goals as quickly as we can, not just in the pure climate investments uh, around you know renewables uh, and other resilience projects, but also in the way that we're stitching climate into the fabric of every investment that we make. Uh, and the, but the bottom line, Dan, is that without the private sector, we as a global community are, are never going to get there. Uh, we need to be accelerating uh, the work that the private sector is doing. And, and that's where some of the sort of the financial innovation comes into play. Um, you know, as you are probably familiar, the Build Act authorized uh, DFC to issue equity investments, which was a new addition from what OPEC had authority to do from Congress. 
Jake, we hear a lot, uh, often political talk, but about how even if the U.S. can hit its climate reduction goals, even if China could hit its, you still have so many countries that, for lack of a better term, feel politically they've got bigger things to worry about, bigger economic problems, more immediate problems they have to worry about. How do you prevent yourself from being just a drop in that bucket? Yeah, well, you you just sort of hit the nail on the head of one of the key theses of of this job, which is that, you know, no matter how hard we go domestically on climate, we have a massive, massive challenge internationally in terms of the rate of emissions and the acceleration of that rate from overseas. I think that there's been some conventional wisdom that you can't have economic development without uh, fossil fuels. And part of what we are excited to uh, show the world is that in the developing world, in lower income countries, there are very similar opportunities to build clean energy economies in, in the same way that we talk about uh, in the United States um, and in Western countries. And, and you know, in some places, there's the opportunity to really build sort of the future technology without having to rely on the conventional technologies of the past. But it's going to be a challenge. A, a number of countries uh, are actively exploring opportunities to invest in fossil fuels. And our hope is that with our partners at other DFIs and multilateral development banks, that we can uh, sort of show a, a new model for how clean energy investments really provide the kind of development and finance goals that everybody is interested in, in, in doing in these communities. Jake, within the specific areas of uh, climate tech or clean tech, what do you see DFC being particularly well-equipped to help with? I mean, is that storage? Is that EV charging, solar, or something else? It's uh, it's all of the above. Um, you know, we invest uh, in... Oh, come on, but you got to be best at something. What's the main thing? We have an excellent track record in the power sector already. You know, at this point, investing in renewables in places like India, Brazil, Mexico, a number of sub-Saharan Africa, renewables are competitive with fossil fuels. And you are not going to see fossil fuel power deals um, out-competing renewables on cost. Where the DFC is really going to play an important role is in crowding in finance and in bringing um, new economies of scale to sort of the next marginal cost. So you mentioned storage. And that's something that I'm really excited about, because even though solar is competitive with fossil fuels, solar plus storage, and particularly in the economies that we work in, is more expensive. And so if we're able to play in that space, then that's a really meaningful value add. I'd also very much like for us to be aggressive and ambitious in what we're doing in transportation. There's a huge opportunity to decarbonize, but also to work on air quality and diesel emissions from heavy duty trucking and a number of sort of key vehicle technologies. And and there's a lot of work to do also in baseload power, geothermal, hydro. The list goes on. I, maybe I can come back and, and give you an update after a couple months in the job. Jake Levine, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dan. This was great. Welcome back. What we're watching today is inflation. After the U.S. Labor Department reported that consumer prices rose 4.2% over the past year. That's the quickest pace since 2008, and it's been stoked by economic reopening and an unprecedented influx of money into the economy via all of that government stimulus. Inside the numbers, which is known as the Consumer Price Index, energy prices rose the most in the past year by a whopping 
And that could go even higher in the next CPI report due to that pipeline ransomware attack that's been hammering gas supply this week. The big question now is if we're on the verge of significant inflation, which would be a huge drag on the economy and on all of our abilities to afford stuff, or if it's just a temporary blip, which is what both the White House and Federal Reserve seem to believe. Oh, and as a corollary to that, how all of this will play into this summer's debates over trillions of dollars in new spending on infrastructure and social services. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, Justin Kaufman, and Alex Sugiara. Please, if you have not yet left us a review, do so and be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast. Have a great National Limerick Day, dirty or clean. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.